I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is behavioral scientist and professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, Todd Rogers. Good morning, Todd. It's great to have you on again to chat. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you are my first repeat guest. Oh, no. Thank you. That uh, yeah. I'm sure the first of many, and uh, uh, it, it's fun. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be able to talk with your audience. And you. Yeah, well, it's a very big deal. You just, you know, like we did, didn't ha- we didn't get to cover everything, and there's some things that you are doing right now that are so pertinent to, um, I think, what happens with kids and families as we move through the summer and through the fall, and so we didn't want to wait. Great. Um, yeah. So maybe we can, can we just start by just, um, you, you spend a lot of time thinking and working on absenteeism. And um, can you talk just very quickly about what schools were focused on pre-COVID and what the dynamics were and um, what is, what, what, are, what are we worried about now and how is that worry compounded, which I'm assuming it really has from everything I've read, it looks like. This is a massive problem at this point. Yeah, so it before COVID, it was well known and widely concerned about that the more school kids miss, the less likely they are to graduate from school, the lower their standardized test scores, the lower their grades, the lower their connectedness with their peers and social emotional health, even later in life earnings. Uh, and and states and cities and districts around the country started um, adding, reducing absenteeism as one of their core measurable uh, accountability metrics. And, and, and this was primarily because they knew that if the, the more days a student spent in school, the better they achieved academically. Yes. That uh, and a, a very strong connection that the more time kids miss the less well they do in school. And it's and, this, this notion of learning loss, which was pre-COVID measured in days, right? Like number of days that a student missed. Now we're looking at learning loss in terms of weeks and months. Yeah, exactly. And also when you talk about measures, uh, one of the things that we, those of us who work on getting kids to show up and understanding the impact and how to influence kids showing up, uh, one of the elegance elements of uh, attendance is that it's almost uniform across the state and across the country. So Mm. like a day of school is a uniform measure and it's easy to look at schools and classrooms and districts and states on this metric. And now I know that we're jumping the gun as we move into COVID. We're very concerned about kids showing up, Uh, not just logging in, although that's a prereq for then actively engaging. But at this point, even having measurable units that we can look at for improvement or comparison, we, we don't even have metrics for that stuff yet. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because so, uh, you know, you're saying that across the country, a day was a day. Um, and it strikes me that we there's there's like massive shades of gray at this point because a day online, which is how all kids were attending school for the past, through the end of the school year, 
could be an excellent, like high quality virtual learning experience down to a very low quality virtual learning experience out to, I never showed up for my virtual learning experience. And so in that, there's got to be this, like a day is not equal to a day any longer because of quality. Right. And, and honestly, a day being equal across classrooms, across schools, across districts, across states was probably not the same either. Right. Uh, but now we don't even know what, what, what the thing we're referring to is. Mm-hmm. Is it a kid logs in once a day, once a mm-hmm. week? The teacher connects with the parent once a week, twice a week. The, the kid turns in their assignments on whatever we think a regular basis is. And, and it's understandable in, given the, the chaos and rapid transition in March that these things weren't sorted out. But my fear is that we're going to start the fall and these still won't be resolved, and everyone's expectations are going to be a lot higher uh, for, and the tolerance for a lack of measuring things and knowing what it is we're trying to optimize. Well, yeah, that's, so are you saying, because it would seem to me like that one of the important, most important things to do would be to just level set, like do a series of tests or some other way, you tell me, to understand where every child is against where they should be based on age, I guess, and, and amount of time in school and, and just kind of see what, what the spectrum of need looks like. Do, do you think that will not happen? Uh, I, so it's a slight, you're asking a slightly different question, which I think is an important one, which is uh, I, I was talking to the superintendent yesterday of a large district where uh, he was asking, uh, how do we assess and report how much was lost mm. of over the la- over the from March until September, uh, and and our conclusion in the discussion was well maybe we don't need to worry so much about communicating and assessing what was lost so much as we really need to focus on assessing and developing a plan for where they currently are right, right. And so I, I just I just from a productivity standpoint it just doesn't seem we we need to do the evaluation the retrospective. But yes, we absolutely, like every kid is going to be at different places for reasons you and I spoke about a while ago, or actually before recording this, some kids are going to be deeply engaged. Some kids will have never logged on. And so whatever inequities existed beforehand are likely to be dramatically exacerbated. uh, So, and this is, this is right. And this has got to be across economic and racial lines, right? It seems like based on what I've read, the, this, this does not appear to be as problematic for affluent districts and private schools. And it's deeply problematic for urban school districts. And so are you worried that we are massively widening economic and racial divides here too? Uh, yes, a- a- absolutely. And, and even looking at it in a more micro level within a classroom or within a school, whatever gaps existed are likely to be cut, to have grown. Uh, the most engaged students, most engaged students compared to the least engaged students in the same classroom in the same school are going to have a bigger gap than they had before. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, One of the articles that you sent me was a New York Times article where Michael Casserly, who's the executive director of the Council of Great City Schools, was quoted as saying, the work that will need to be done to catch children up academically and socially 
which I want to talk about as well, is huge. He called the prospect of unfinished learning from this time a serious issue that could have implications for years. I, I have been trying to wrap my head around that. Um, and, and educators are so distressed by this topic. Can, can, you, can you somehow paint a picture for the magnitude of this issue? Well, I, the, it's only speculation at this point, uh, but because we don't have great data on it. But I, I suspect that the already gaping inequities uh, are just dramatic, are just going to be dramatically exacerbated. And, and look, we'll tell the story of two kids, right? So there's one kid who is either a self-directed learner and pushing him or herself every day just because they want to and or because their parents are plugged in, have internet, have a quiet space, create the conditions for learning. And that kid is just chugging along. You could even imagine that kid is moving faster than they would have mm-hmm. done in class. They're using all the tools, all the voluntary resources a district offered up. They might even be com- communicating with the teacher on a regular basis. In the same classroom, a kid who was disengaged has household chaos, incredible distress in their life, uh, and not really a, a space physically to conducive to learning may have disengaged from formal learning. In fact, we know that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these kids right. over the last months. And so they were in the same classroom. And, it, and, and they were originally measured by we know that the, the second kid was chronically absent, missed a ton of school, and was far behind, but went in school, a lot of effort went into trying to catch him or her up. Right. And then the other kid was cruising along and showing up every day. Yeah. And now it's just like, imagine where those two students are going to be coming in in the fall. Right. And this is, like you said, we can't, it's hard to quantify the numbers of students. We, I mean, we know just even in the city of Boston, they're reporting that nine or 10,000 students of 54,000 have never appeared on, on the technology that they've been given to, um, to attend school. It, and as you know, we spend a good amount of time as a foundation understanding food access needs of vulnerable families, but that's really led us to a better understanding of this crazy monthly tightrope that they walk between housing bills and utility bills and food. Um, and the implications of all of this on ap- academic success in a COVID-19 world are, are, just, are just crazy because our most vulnerable families it's nearly impossible for some of those students to connect because they're being called on to do other things that are just survival tactics for, for the family. Um, it does make me wonder, and I don't know what you talk to a lot of um, heads of academic institutions across the country. I mean, there's a very different role being played here by schools in terms of providing extraordinary social supports, which are easier to provide when kids are proximate to, um, to the individuals who serve them. And, and so how are we thinking about that as, as, especially if this continues through, through the fall or, you know, we fall, we have to fall back into a virtual world, you know, sometime in the midst of the fall. What, what, how are people thinking about this? Yeah. I, so there's so many different directions to take on that. I, um, just to, to start, 
I were the one regret that I really do have is that in early March, when Seattle had already shut down schools, mm-hmm. uh, and it became evident that it was going to start spreading through the U.S. The school shutdowns. <clears throat> I had spoken with, and I may have even spoken with you about this, but I had spoken with folks about you know school districts while kids are still there should really invest in making sure they have good contact information for their families yeah. uh, and use the kids to go confirm cell phone numbers, confirm other adults in their lives who we can reach out to if we can't find their guardian. Uh, and, and then it was, and then school shut down so rapidly in this cascade. And I wrote, I wrote about it. I wrote a column every week about it. I spoke with everybody about it. But at that point, schools had closed. And so if you mm. didn't have, if you couldn't get in touch with people by then, you weren't going to be able to find them. And then we weren't even able to do our normal things of going door to door and like going into communities, trying to find kids. Um, well, one thing, just a very actionable thing, every district, BPS, as much as any district, should be thinking really hard about the, the contact information forms that they collect early in the year from kids and families. It shouldn't just be their guardian. It should be other adults in their lives so that if their guardian's number becomes invalid or if we can't reach them, we can find others because, um, and we should also make it super easy for families to update their contact information. So back even before the coronavirus recession in low income communities, you're looking at 60% household moving in a year, every year. Yeah. And so like in this environment where, who knows about whether what, what household stability we're going to have, but everything doesn't look, everything, it's likely to be even higher. Right. Um, so, so th- that's one very, very concrete thing. The other thing that in response to what you were saying, uh, totally understandably district leaders are trying hard to expand the, her- the time horizon they're worried about. They're like right now, they would love to be worried about attendance in the fall. But right mm-hmm. now they're really worried about launching summer school. And then when summer school starts, they will quickly realize no one's showing up. So they'll have to worry about that. And then they'll worry about transition to school. And then once school starts, then they'll worry. Like the, the pro, the, a problem that, I'm, that I see everywhere is that even really thoughtful, deliberate leaders are struggling to be able to start worrying about the things they know they need to worry about for next year because every week's a new crisis. Yeah. I I have noticed that too, that, that we are in an entirely reactive um, state of being on, on every level. I mean, you know, we, we look deeply at food access. We are, we are so reactive um, and, and, and not planful in the fall for folks who are in the middle of it just seems so far away. And right now they have to tackle the present problems. But I mean, I agree with you. Um, how, how do, how, well, on the one hand, how, how do they, how do leaders feel like tomorrow is going to be any different than today in terms of executing summer school? And, um, you know, it seems like we could be taking steps to help more students be online or be present wherever they're going to be allowed to be present. I mean, one of the things that's really bothering me is just lack of internet access. And I mean, there's got to be a better solve for this in low income areas. I feel like we need to like toss it over to Elon Musk or someone to come up with a solution here, but I don't understand how right now it's not being 
treated like a public service um, and just being committed to, to every family so that students have a way to access their schools for because because schools are at the center of, of their care right now. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of families, schools are the single government interaction point that they trust and that they value the most. Yeah, I, uh, I, I the internet, uh, internet access and food security uh, and housing security and job security and educational challenges. Like, I know it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but they're they're all tied to this one, this sort of like core fundamental problem that is, yeah, like, that is, is inequality, poverty, and a, and a lack of a social safety net. And, <laughs> but it, they're like we, but we all we're left with is trying to solve one problem at a time when they're all tied. Um, they're all tied, a hundred percent. But yeah, so the the internet, the inter- I, I don't I don't know. I mean, districts, you know, some of the some of the large districts. Uh, for example, Philly has has spent uh, a lot of time this time really distributing, like really intentionally focused on distributing, making computers and making sure everybody has internet access. And it was really oh, like an, so infra- good. an infrastructure investment. Yeah. And are they paying for it as a city? Uh, I know that they Comcast is headquartered in Philly, and I know there was a big contribution uh-huh. from Comcast to subsidize the internet part. Uh, but what I, what initially I, it didn't make as much sense to me that the 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 in the rank order of priorities there were so many problems. Uh, I, every, it's hard to choose a problem to focus on first. But what's, right. what they're going to start paying dividends on is having invested in the infrastructure because I assume yeah. we'll get to this. My regardless of whether schools open in the fall, they're going to be closing in the fall. And so yeah. we're going to be back, uh, whether it's every school or just case by case, uh, we're going to be back to a world where there's a lot of remote learning. Uh, and so having an infra- having the infrastructure, especially, particularly, principally for our most vulnerable families is the most important. So, okay. So I agree with that. And, and I love your point about making sure that you have good contact information for every family and student in your district, um, thinking about other pieces of infrastructure, uh, I know you've been spending time thinking about contact tracing. This is obviously going to have to be a part of back to school. Um, how do you? How will that work? Um, and who will pay for it? And will schools be up for doing that with the rigor that they'll need to execute with? I don't. I'm not going to make a prediction about whether people will be able to pull it off, but they, it seems. We'll talk like about what they what, what they'll need to do, and I'll make <laughs> yeah. a prediction. No, I'm just yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, I, I don't want. I'll make a prediction when the recording is over because I don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't want. I don't want people to get depressed by my predictions. Uh, <laughs> but the um, uh, so public health people talk about that the economy and schools can open. And workplaces can open if we have any two of the following three, which is ubiquitous testing, uh, treatment, uh, like a perfect treatment or a vaccine, mm-hmm. or and contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Any two of those three and everything can open. Uh, and the contact tracing one is really interesting because so, so what it basically entails is, uh, w- let's say you and I are in, we work, we somehow are in close proximity. 
Mm-hmm. I get diagnosed with coronavirus. Uh, they need to immediately elicit from me who are my close contacts and what are their contact information. Mm-hmm. And then and then they need to proactively reach out to everyone as quickly as possible and then get them tested. So those are the steps. Uh, and that, that is like... That's the goal of the con- so the contract tra- tracers that are being trained across the country. That's that's what they're oriented around is finding the folks who have come in contact and getting them tested, and or yeah. and or isolated, I guess. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, and or isolated. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but the but you can see it's such an incredibly data intensive challenge, which mm. is how do you find my close contacts? Then when you find them, how do you get contact information on them? And then the contact tracers can work. And reach mm-hmm. out to them and do their thing, and uh, and there's all sorts of systems being built in place to do this. Almost always led by state governors' offices and mm-hmm. their public health branch, their public health uh, branches, uh, and and schools are almost to every discussion I've ever had. Schools and school and transmission within schools and the data within schools. I have never seen a, uh, that as part of the discussion. Uh, for how contact tracing will work in the field. And what's, yeah, it's, what's well, it's interesting, right? Cause we just talked about making sure everyone has good contact info <laughs> and now we're, you know, it, that's the key component to good contact tracing. Yeah. There's at least that. And there's another one that schools have that's so, so the key for all of it is doing it as fast as possible. Right. So people right. now are familiar with are not, but like basically how contagious is the disease how many people get infected for every one person who's infected. That, that is a function of time yeah. here. Yeah. And the every hour delay increases the r naught of the virus. Yeah. And so schools have amazing data. They, they, let's, let's just go K-5. We actually know who kids, like the kids who licked each other, like all the kindergartners in the same class mm-hmm. are like busy slobbering on each other. They are, mm-hmm. and we have roster data. So immediately upon my son getting diagnosed, the district could, although it will be way, if if they build the system, they could immediately pull the class roster and the contact info we have on those people and immediately hand it to the contact tracers. Uh, But instead, what I I worry is going to happen is the contact tracers will then reach out to the school. It'll be a two-day delay of data export. Uh, and, And someone will have to solve FERPA and HIPAA, the sharing of this data between the public health officials and the schools. And from what I understand, governors have the executive authority to waive some of those things in Mm -hmm. under certain constraints. Um, But like those systems need to be built. And that's something that we've been worried about. Some collaborators and I have just been worried about trying to get people to at least think about how would you solve this? Um, So, so, but, but schools are going to be amazing resources for this. Like they have the best cut, relatively the best contact information and with rosters they actually have a pretty good sense of who is um, who's present who's, who's who's close proximity yeah so and and why um w- wouldn't this come out of um the education offices either at the federal level or at the state level or maybe even at the city level that just that just it would seem like the education system should have its own contact tracers like uh, Totally. And I will say that some of the most far-sighted superintendents that I've talked with, it's on their list. Okay. But they they need to launch summer school and a virtual summer school. And then they need Mm -hmm. to figure out how to transition 
kids back to school. And like what I said, like it's just not on anyone's top of their list. Right. And who's and, paying and for contact tracing? Okay, exactly. Sorry. I think it's coming out. Exactly. That was where I was going. I think yeah. I think that like sensibly the executives of the state, the governor, the yeah. governors are deciding that this is going to be owned by the public health department. And then mm. the public health department will oversee it. And, you know, now you need these bureaucracies to work together that have basically never, certainly never in this intensity worked together no. before while there's fires everywhere else. Aye, aye, aye. No, yeah. but, but so, but no, but you, yes, aye, aye, aye. But like, it actually, it, it's not there. We need to solve the FERPA and HIPAA stuff about sharing the data. Right. And then, and then we just need school systems to be prepared to just have the code or the simple system for exporting the data conditional on having solved the FERPA problem. Are, are you, are, are there, I know Google was working on something around con- contact tracing. Are, have you seen, is there any technology that's forthcoming that you think might could be helpful with this? There are, there are a lot in development. A, a challenge that I have, yeah. I've read some pretty, uh, they seem like such good ideas. Imagine turning on Bluetooth on all of our phones or on a certain proportion of phones, and then you get alerted that someone that you spent 30 minutes with, yeah, uh, without naming who it was, tell you were with you were within five feet or six feet of that person. They have coronavirus. In the last two days, you were you were close to them. Uh, whatever. That, that's that's the the dream in a lot of states. Are I think North Dakota may have already launched an app like that. Okay. Um, it's a, but a challenge with that is I think what's going to end up, what my, a worry that I have is that we're going to get a whole lot of false positives, meaning like, hey, Jill, you should go get tested. You were in close proximity. It'll happen two or three times. And you're like, this thing doesn't know anything. And then it'll lose all credibility. Oh, interesting. I don't know. There, there's lots of problems, if, even if you can solve the technology problem. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'd rather know but I see what you're saying. This is probably one of those things you spend time thinking about as a behavioral psych- scientist. Yeah. How people yeah, I, react. I, right. I, I really do think that the, the contact tracers yeah, are the, um, the human contact tracers are probably the best yeah. version of that. But I, 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 let's, if, you're, if you're okay with it, I'd rather steer us to talking about schools because that's slightly more tractable this is going to turn into the, the sadness of 1 a.m. reading the newspaper. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Okay. So let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Um, the, one other thing I wanted to hit on was you also sent, I think it was a Brookings article that started to try to project the economic impact globally of the current state of um, absenteeism or uh, learning loss uh, that's already happened. And it was sort of extraordinary. Um, are there ways to cancel that? You know, so so yes, this happened and these are the current circumstances. I would imagine also we can we can fix what has happened. We just, we, I would imagine we just need time and good content and pra- practical applications, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes, we, we, kids can make up what was lost, uh, if we're, you know, if we do all we can in in educating them and create systems to keep them, you know, ready to learn. The, uh, 
the thing that I'm that I'm worried about on that front is if the fall, whatever the fall looks like, having kids show up and like this disparity in in the kids who uh, have environments that and and environments and households and norms and the the supports to continue to be showing up every day to doing their schoolwork versus the kids who don't. And I I just, like, it's more important than ever. I I know this is a slight, um, a slight like veering, but, but one, um, one thing that you could interpret. So let's imagine we do see this data, that the data is Mm going to be that we see growing disparities, which I just think is implausible is almost certain we are going to see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that it, that this like missing this shutting down school shows is how important actually being there is uh, because so some psychologist friends of mine and I were like decomposing the, the learning experience now versus the learning experience in school right. the learning experience when it was in school you, you make one decision initially which is to show up and then you have a physical space norms and expectations a social context and curriculum uh, that all push you in a pe- in a flow for the next seven and a half hours that yeah. reinforces some version of learning. Now you log in, the TV is on next to you. You do one Zoom, and then you have to make another decision. Every at the end of everything you do, you have to make another decision: Do I do this, or do I do whatever whatever other thing is around? Right. And it's just it's it's a whole series of really taxing decisions. Uh, that taxing meaning like cognitively taxing, like you just self control taxing. To yeah, right. Just each doing each thing, and so one of the so like one of the things if we end up in a virtual or remote learning again, like it's really important to build routines and help families help their kids build routines so that it's not every activity is not another decision. And I'm a parent of two small kids, not another fight with the kids about doing their work like that there's some making it easier to parent and making it easier for the kids to learn is like building structures that reinforce the flow of learning and it's just those things that just basically washed away when schools close yeah no you're right because schools really act as we've been talking about this too they're they're a haven from homelessness they're a haven from food access they're a haven from abusive environments i mean they provide so much they they are they provide love um it it's kind of extraordinary and even health even you know mental illness or even just physical illness like the fact that you have a school nurse and you have a teacher paying attention to what you physically and mentally uh, are projecting it, it is so important and, and none of that, I agree with you, not, not very much of that could possibly be happening um, virtually. But I, I know you've been thinking about this deeply, especially from a, well, and from every direction, but you and I have been talking about it in terms of social interaction. Um, and, and kids are really missing social interaction. Um, so how are, how are school districts thinking about social connectedness and... I guess also, how are you advising them and are there things that they can be doing or that quite honestly, any of us can be doing to be, to support students who are feeling socially isolated um, or families who are. Yeah, I think, 
it's it's a big problem and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. I uh, I think that we'll, there are two different stages or phases of thinking about this. Well, let's just talk about the current March to now until now. Mm-hmm. There's a a lot of and you everyone has read these. There's a, there's a massive spike in mental health challenges and feelings of isolation and lack of belonging and connectedness among kids. Right. Uh, and understandably, not ju- not just have schools shut down, but their entire lives have been shut down right. uh, for a, uh, an amount of time that I don't think any of us would have predicted we could have endured. Uh, and then we could have easily endured. And then, mm. and then now uh, we're going into the school, a new school year where there will be a, bun- a, a you know a very large fraction of kids transitioning to new schools. Yeah, of with, course. With with new cohorts, and even if they're not transitioning to new schools, they have new cohorts of classmates and teachers will be teaching students they don't know. Yeah, uh, and the students will be in classes of peers they don't know, and just the the like it's hard enough being in school, <laughs> let alone not knowing anybody, um, and and then cross that with the reality that. I don't know the proportion, but not all kids have the social skills to build relationships virtually, healthy relationships virtually, let alone the logistical skills of maintaining them in healthy ways. Right. Uh, and so, so, the, so the transition back to school is a really uh, important, possibly terrifying period for those of us who care about students' mental health and their connectedness to school. And even if even if mental health is not the focus, there's this downstream consequence that if a kid feels connected to their classmates and their teacher, they're probably more likely to show up and they're probably more likely to work and learn. Yeah. So even if even if we were only interested in the academic outcomes, there's there's a very strong theory. I would hypothesize a very strong theory that facilitating kids feeling connected to their classmates, even purely socially. Uh, will have really high payoff in a remote environment for kids showing up and doing work academically. So, so it's something we've we've worried about, and you and I have talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, and do you I, think there are ways to use technology to help support I, students socially? Yeah, I really, I, I mean, I I think so. We're working a lot of a lot of versions of this in my lab for the last few years. We've been working on interventions in middle schools to help kids make friends. So what mm-hmm. kinds of things should they talk about? Uh, how do we structure these interactions? How do we help people build relationships? And that, and both build relationships, but also build the tools to build relationships. But honestly, for me, it, it isn't so much about how do we build the capacity to build friendships so much as let's just induce them. Let's create the conditions where they're formed, even just now, so that, they, so that we can huh. get the benefits in this environment. And hopefully the social skills, it's just a harder game trying to build, inculcate, and cultivate the kinds of social skills that people need moving forward. Right now, I just want people to be connected. So one idea uh, that, that we're playing around with is basically like a round robin. If, if there's 25 of us in a class uh, doing a, a, a using basically like imagine something like Zoom groups where each of us are connected to each other for two minutes and then we rotate through uh, mm-hmm. so that in like a one and maybe in a 50 minute period, 
everybody talks with everybody, does some activity with every other student for two minutes. And the teacher can rotate through there. And it can be sort of an activity. It doesn't have to be just like small talk because that can be really anxiety provoking for kids. Uh, mm. But it can be just some some age appropriate, even it's a game. It could be a game related to what they're about to learn about in that class. Uh, but the idea is to kick off the week or that time period with something that resembles standing in line or waiting for class to start or right. standing in line in the lunchroom. But just like the, the casual, pointless interactions that help to build relationships. Right, and right. And familiarity. So, you know, one of the things that I've, to, just to build on that thought, because you know I love that idea, is the other thing I've been thinking about is how do we connect kids who are in these more privileged districts um, and schools with students in need. And, you know, I've been just doing my own, I, I just ask any kid that I have access to, um, whether or not they would want to be connected to kids to help them serve as mentors and things like that. Are there, there's so many mentoring programs across the country. Is anyone thinking about how to use kids who are in high-performing schools who probably have a lot of the structure that they need? I think they still desperately need the social piece of this that you're describing. And, um, and I think many of them would love the opportunity to be matched with someone that they might mentor or befriend. Um, is anyone thinking about that too? Just using, you know, we have this great um, supply of wonderful children to, you know, that we can match with, with one another. Is anyone thinking about that? That's really interesting. You know, I, uh, maybe five or six years ago, thought about doing research on mentoring. Um, and, and my memory of the summary of that literature was that they're peer mentoring. So like a sixth grader mentoring a second grader mm -hmm. or an 11th grader mentoring a fifth grader or something. Mm -hmm. uh, was that there, there's some benefit to the mentee, but that there are unambiguous, robust benefits to the mentor. Yes. Uh, and, and that's a really neat idea. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine even within a, within a, a school K-12 vertical uh, making it and Making the, the just create creating that kind of um, yeah, that's social, interesting, right? Social connect wouldn't be that hard, and it's easily. I mean, it's one of the few things that is maybe easier in school virtually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I do want. I want to add one piece, which is like to me, anything. So anyone who is listening and knows about my work and our work together. Like for me, it's all about trying to s develop interventions that are easy to implement by districts and teachers at scale. And so any intervention that's developed that makes it easy for teachers to do it is more likely to be used than it, right. than it isn't very mindful of the fact that teachers are, have a, a million things that they have to do. And so when we even talk about that round robin, the sort of, the, the video chat social accelerator idea, the, the real key is making it super easy to use so that it will be used. Right. Because then you don't have to make another decision, right? To your point yeah. about, yeah. Yeah. And just for teachers. Yeah, exactly. Everything, making it easy for students to use, but also especially because teachers are going to mediate everything. Uh, Interesting. Just to, uh, and parents are going to, between teachers and parents, some combination of them is going to mediate all educational stuff. Yeah. Um, really user, I mean, 
made this is a statement of the obvious, but it's worth like redeclaring, making it as easy as possible for the users to adopt. What like even small frictions are enormous barriers. Yeah, it does. It does feel like maybe to summarize this conversation a little bit that we we really kind of all Americans need to be rethinking education at, at least. Well, I think it is it is through um, through COVID nineteen and and into the future um, because teachers and schools have so many more responsibilities than were highlighted in the past and and right now you know the notion that your number one priority should be to make sure that you have the best contact information for each student that you possibly can um, I mean it's we you know these are expectations that we've never really had for teachers or school districts and yet you know, now you're suggesting that's the number one thing. And then I think under that has to be really assessing a student's needs, um, including when they're not showing up at all um, and making sure that supports are being provided to that student and the family to try to get them back into an academic environment as quickly as we can um, with, you know, with all the supports that they need. and so we're really in an extraordinary time, and it feels like public education and maybe education in general has just kind of marched along on exactly the same path for, what, 100 years plus, and that we really have to have the expectation that we're taking a serious left turn and start to yeah. get our hands around that. I mean, it, 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 in some ways, it's, it's back, back to the future where... Uh, I I actually don't know whether parents were ever more central and had a strong relationship with schools in the past, but I know that uh, my mentor and friend, Karen Mapp, has always talked about uh, and and led, guided my way of approaching research as viewing parents as assets. And it's never more obvious than it has been now that that parents that having this asset-based view that that we need to invest in their capability to serve the common objective of helping kids their kids succeed in school uh yeah i mean so we rethink we can rethink the fun, the various functions and, and responsibilities that have already been assigned to schools and the many purposes schools serve but this is really shown as starkly as it could be how important parents are as partners yeah, and absolutely. That, that is true in remote learning, but it will continue to be true. And it has always been true in in-person school. Um, so like parents are the, the, the first point for supporting all the learning that's going on, but not just the first point, they're the centerpiece. Yeah. So great schools will really figure out how to program around that notion and, and use, use parents as partners and, and um, get parents to lean in. Yeah, I am. I mean, if there's anything, there's a, there are a lot of changes that are going to happen over the next coming years that are informed by this. But an increasing centrality in what happens in school of the role of parents is, is one of the things that seems hard to imagine that will not be the case. Parents will yeah. become increasingly central and appreciated as, as the, the assets. Uh, well, as you there. and I know, that is such an important piece of solving education education problems, especially um, in urban districts where that, that's, it's very difficult for parents to feel like they can be involved and, and, and for parents to be involved. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I hope you, I hope you have a great day with your kids. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Todd Rogers, behavioral scientist and professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. We covered a great deal today, and it seems like between contact tracing, decreasing absenteeism, and creating programs to help parents participate in their child's learning, we have a great deal to do to ready ourselves for a successful fall. We also need a plan for supporting our students who miss school for whatever reason and to help them get back on track. I always appreciate talking with Todd as he has great insights into what programs and tactics might be best received. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.